Welcome to the first of a series of special NRF Big Show episodes of The Voice of Retail. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc. This podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada. First up in this episode, recorded live from New York City at the NRF Big Show in the NRF Podcasting Studio, Giant Tiger President and COO Paul Wood joins me. We learn about all about this fast-growing Canadian retailer based in my hometown of Ottawa, how their business structure keeps them wired directly into the market, how retail CEOs deal with the many demands on their time, and what lies ahead for Giant Tiger. Next, Steve Dennis makes his return to the podcast as we catch up on the goings-on in global retail, his predictions for 2019, hits and misses, shift happening, forecast for 2020, thoughts on the big show, and we debut Steve's new book, Remarkable Retail. But first, let's listen into my conversation live from the NRF Podcasting Studio with Paul Wood. Paul, welcome to The Voice of Retail. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Michael. Thanks for having me. Glad well, we're here. Here, at, uh, we're here at the big NRF show. We're in the NRF podcasting studio. We've been here a couple of days. What's your early observations of the, of the show? Uh, the this, this show keeps, uh, keeps getting bigger. It, the, just the volume of people, the uh, yeah. number of sessions, uh, it just seems to keep growing every, every year. It's interesting to see the, uh, the d- developments, the common themes that, that mm. play out on the show floor and in the content. Um, and so, yeah, it's been, been a good experience so far. Well, let's delve into that a little later. Let's, st- let's start off with a bit about yourself. Tell me a little bit about your personal and professional journey and, and your role now at Giant Tiger. Sure. Uh, so I started uh, in the uh, business stream, was a chartered accountant, worked in public accounting for a few years, uh, made the, I guess, not too uh, atypical transition from uh, public accounting to a client. Giant Tiger was the largest client at the firm that I was uh, mm-hmm. was at. Passed up an opportunity to stay and be a accountant partner for life and, and made the jump to <laughs> uh, to retail and the rest is uh, rest is history. It's been a fantastic ride since then. Uh, kind of had the opportunity to, to grow within the business mm-hmm. uh, through a number of different uh, areas of responsibility within Giant Tiger uh, over the years, uh, eventually to the, the CFO role. Um, but responsibility spreading much broader than just finance yeah. through merchandise planning and real estate and HR and uh, warehousing distribution supply chain, so kind of a, a pretty broad cross section over over time as uh, as things moved along, and was fortunate enough to be uh, be appointed the the president and COO last uh, August. So been Take enjoying it. that uh, transition and and the the new responsibilities that come with that role over the last uh, five or six months. Well, right on! Congratulations, taking over for uh, Thomas Haig, a colleague of mine from uh, Hudson Bay. Yeah, so. we enjoyed uh, having Thomas with us for about four and a half years, and uh, yeah. it was a, a pleasure really working with him, getting his uh, new perspective on. Uh, the institution that is Giant Tiger over the years, and he certainly breathed uh, uh, some different uh, air into the mix and, and brought some of his experience and past and, and melded it in. So it was uh, right I enjoyed very much the time working with him. So for the listeners uh, who may not be as familiar with Giant Tiger, tell us a little bit about the format. It's a it's an interesting format. Uh, I'm very familiar with being from Ottawa, which is kind of very close to the the hometown of of where uh, Giant Tiger came from. But give us a sense of the format and and the the way you go to market. Sure, absolutely. Uh, so Giant Tiger is a discount retail department store, and we uh, focus on providing uh, great value products at everyday low price uh, to basically service a family's uh, needs across the board. So uh, our, our product mix covers about 50% uh, grocery in terms of volume, uh, another 30-35% apparel for men, women, and children. And uh, including footwear and accessories, uh, and finally, uh, the balance is made up of uh, kind of soft home, home fashion, mm-hmm. uh, household goods, and uh, seasonal products. So, 
kind of a, a decent cross-section of everything that you would need to, right. to get by uh, and all provided at great value and uh, everyday low price for our customers. And, so and lots of private labor, right? Private labor plays a very big role, particularly in the food side of the business, right? Uh, yeah, we have a, a, a good selection of private label within the food. On our apparel side, our, our private labels, uh, both Lily Morgan and MyStyle uh, and Charisma are three brands that we've uh, launched over the last uh, four or five years mm -hmm. within in the business and really uh, carry the bulk of our soft good uh, volume now for us. Right on. And, and when you're in each market... Uh, talk about a little bit about the business structure. Giant Tiger has operated as a franchise model um, really since its early days. We were founded in 1961 in Ottawa, uh, and in 1968 opened the first uh, franchise location uh, in Manawaki, Quebec, so just outside of Ottawa mm -hmm. across the border. We have operated now as a franchisee, franchise operation since uh, then as a key part of our, our business strategy. Uh, we believe we're uh, more successful having an owner-operator in those local markets mm -hmm. and providing that uh, local merchant insight to uh, how we go to market in those uh, local, uh, local areas. We have corporate stores because of our, our model. We, we open them corporately, install a manager, and then allow that manager mm -hmm. to uh, perform, grow with the store, and, and have the opportunity to become a franchise owner. Mm -hmm. Uh, within the mix. So uh, more of a closed loop system, not yeah. offered for sale on the open market. Yeah. Uh, however, if, if we uh, like to s tell people, if we ever stopped growing uh, and if all of our franchise owners uh, didn't age and never wanted to retire, yeah. uh, over a few years, we would end up being 100% franchised. Mm. So we only have corporate stores because of the life cycle of those stores. They're either new waiting to become franchised, or we have repurchased them from a retiring franchisee and are waiting to refranchise to the next, oh, interesting. Uh, interesting. The next uh, potential franchise right. owner, I guess, from within the system. And I, I, I think I read you just opened another store. So what's your store count up to? How big's the fleet? What's your store count up? Uh, so we are, we are around 260 stores mm -hmm. uh, now in the chain um, from uh, Alberta to PEI. Not yet in Newfoundland or in BC, but uh, certainly still looking for uh, additional opening opportunities. We just announced uh, a store in Sault Ste. Marie, which will be our first one there, and we're continuing to, to expand into uh, what we believe are still existing white space opportunities for us within, sure. uh, within the country. So, uh, you know, still relatively small chain if mm -hmm. you compare to some of the, the other names in Canadian retail that still we're growing rough fast. again, but growing still, fast, still growing. Though, We've growing. been adding. Uh, adding uh, 10 stores or so a year for the last uh, five or six years, like, you know, fluctuates based on availability and timing and, sure. and finding the right real estate. We've been uh, very focused over the years at ensuring that you know, we're in, in the right place, playing, paying the right price for right the, the rent. As a low-cost operator, that's a, a key, uh, certainly, tenant of our success, but um, still uh, definitely tapping into opportunity we see in the, in the market and, and to uh, continue to expand the brand and its presence across the country. So let's, dig it, let's drill into the owner-operator model a little bit. So one of the clear advantages you already you know, you mentioned is, is the knowledge of the, uh, the immediate customer base, right? They, they're really connected to their customer base. How does that, though, um, articulate itself and how you think about the brand and having one cohesive giant tiger brand and one assortment? Because they can make, they, the owner-operators, can make different choices about what they're carrying and how much. How does that operationally come together to be 
cohesive from your perspective? The uh, the brand, the system, the standards, the expectations are absolutely consistent across the board. And, and uh, with the franchise operation, uh, our responsibility to them is to ensure that that's maintained from one location to another. Uh, there's even some self-monitoring, if you will, amongst the franchise owners mm-hmm. that keep themselves honest, if you will, in that sure. respect to ensure that the delivery is consistent from one to the next so that our customers' experience is as consistent and uh, and on brand and on standard as, as we right. expect. Whether you're in Sault Ste. Marie or Ottawa or wherever yeah, you are. Right? Ab- absolutely. Uh, you know, part of the uniqueness of us is that our stores aren't uh, carbon copy cookie cutters. So mm-hmm. our boxes are all kind of different shapes and sizes, and they've adapted, and, and the owners uh, are able to adapt to the space and to their market and to their customers' needs. They do have the ability with our, our, our system as franchise owners to, be, to make that merchant decision on the product coming into the store. Within reason, there are mm-hmm. um, you know products that are advertised uh, are consistent. Everyone has to carry those. Um, you know, there's a, a number of certainly of, of uh, planogrammed items and basic items that are consistent through the uh, through the mix. Mm. You know, any centralized algorithm of guessing where inventory should be is always um, beaten by that local operator knowing their customer, mm. being engaged in that community, and then having the flexibility to tailor that offering and that the, the merchandising presentation and the quantification of the merchandise to that local micro sure. market. And so that, we believe, uh, has been part of uh, what's driven our success over the years and part of where we mm-hmm. continue to, uh, to focus uh, building the brand as we go forward. So retail CEOs never had more pressure on them, whether they're in the public eye or, or amongst each How do you deal with that kind of the day-to-day pressure with the team? How, does, how do you pull the team together to deal with those, uh, you know, in your case, the comp pressures, the franchisees you're kind of looking for results and input and direction and how does that all come together for you and your team yeah retail's absolutely an exciting place to be right now and there's uh, <laughs> many things on the go on many fronts uh the the team is um you know i have a great team we have a great team including the the franchise owners mm-hmm. uh, that we work with and partner with uh, within our business we definitely look at them as partners not as uh, kind of transactional outsiders sure. if you will we we absolutely work uh, closely with them uh, gaining their input and feedback on what they're they're feeling, uh, what they're experiencing in their markets, and that helps uh, us continue to shape and steer and and uh, focus the the efforts to support what they're going through at a at a market level. Now, the, now, there's a, let's stop and drill into that a little bit. So, there's 200 of them. What's the what's their method of reaching you? Hopefully, not 200 emails from 200 separate owner operators a day. They, do you have a, a method to kind of? consolidate that feedback in some way? Yeah, so there's, uh, we have a, a management support group that consists of uh, an, a subset of the franchise owners that we meet with quarterly, mm-hmm. So, and, and they each are responsible for their region or their area and collect feedback from their stores. Uh, we have regional support managers that uh, oversee uh, kind of areas of the country, and so they're another feedback loop mm-hmm. that we, we get regularly on assortment, on operational issues, on uh, just business challenges, those kind of things. Sure. So there's some kind of defined and, and readily accessible uh, avenues for that to channel it and compile it and, and make it uh, digestible in that, in that sense. Yeah. Team at home office uh, and the executive team 
it's it's a real collaborative effort to focus. Uh, you know, there's a lot of competing objectives, a lot of competing needs across uh, the business, and you know, I guess that boils up to us and and ultimately to uh, to me to help steer kind right. of which of those priorities takes precedence and how we kind right. of uh, focus the effort, but. Uh, very thankful to have a, a very strong and supportive team and that we collaborate very well together. And so it is uh, a very much a team effort on uh, on our side in terms of, uh, of just handling the, the, the pressures you refer to uh, and really helping chart the course uh, for the, the business and for Giant Tiger as a whole. Well, you've, you've made a lot of investments recently as an organization. You've got a new DC in uh, Cornwall, I think. The new no, DC. The, the new DC was in Johnstown, Ontario. It's very near to Prescott, so right. right along the 401 corridor, which yeah. is uh, a great uh, addition to our uh, supply chain and distribution capacity for our, our business for, uh, for now and for many years to come. Uh, it's really centralized that hub of distribution for all of our uh, non-perishable products across the country and uh, complete with some... Uh, rather exciting robotics and uh, oh, that's some changes to uh, yeah. to, to the, the processes that we've uh, used for a lot of years in terms of pulling the, the product together and going to get it to the stores. But that's gone very well for us, and uh, we're and really I, excited I, about that addition. And I can imagine it's a, you know based on what you're describing and how the, there's a fixed part of the assortment, but then there's a very dynamic part of the assortment based on the, the, the different franchisees. It has to be really be flexible as a distribution center, right? Because you're, you're doing small batches of some items and larger batches of more predictable items and others right yeah there there is a there is a mixture um the you know and the flexibility in, in large part comes from our buyer's responsiveness to the market and mm-hmm. to the customer's needs as well and and uh the you know the assortment isn't vastly different from store to store but there is the that kind of local tailored response yep. to it so it is more of a uh, kind of the fine tuning aspect is coming from from that, and the the bulk of the assortment and and the main thrust of the offering is coming through the uh, the hard work of our buying and merchant teams as they mm. you know scour the world for the the next right deal and, and develop the uh, the products at the right prices to deliver that outstanding value to our customers every day. So what's up for 2020? You're building a new HQ, I believe that's one thing. But what's uh, what do you see for the 2020 and beyond? What's uh, what's new with Giant Tiger and what? How do you see the you know what, what's your your crystal ball for the next year or two how are you seeing it <laughs> well that's <laughs> that's a big question <laughs> that's a loaded question for sure uh we are very excited uh to be uh under construction with our new home office so we've uh you know for the last uh 25 years or so been uh, in our our campus on walkley road and the location was uh was suitable but the the premises were were not no longer uh kind of appropriate for the size of the business and for uh just accommodating work our workforce today so uh we're very excited about our new office that's uh under construction slated to uh to to move into that uh, about a year from now so that's that's uh kind of what we're working towards there so that's a very uh, exciting uh, development on top of the, the new DC from a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And so for us, looking at uh, 2020 and beyond, you know, we continue to see opportunities to, uh, to build the, the brand and to service more Canadians. And so through uh, more bricks and mortar locations, through continued uh, developments and expansion of our GiantTiger.com, uh, our mm-hmm. e-commerce business, in uh, offering uh, great products and value for our customers in whatever way they choose to shop uh, Giant Tiger every day. And so we've, we've uh, certainly focused on 
on ensuring that that experience and that uh, that delivery to our customers uh, continues to exceed their expectations and provide that uh, still you know great prices, exciting deals and finds, yeah. and fabulous value every day. Well, fantastic. Well, listen, congratulations on both your personal success. Uh, I've known three. Thank you. CEOs of Giant Tiger, Jeff York, Thomas Haig, and, and now yourself, so congratulations. Thank you. Uh, and uh, and uh, professional, the Giant Tiger business uh, continues to expand. It's a great shop. I enjoy it myself, so uh, congratulations. Thanks for sitting down with The Voice of Retail, and I, I wish you a great show. Yeah, that's great. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate that, and uh, please visit and shop often. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. All right, Steve, welcome back to The Voice of Retail. How are you doing? I'm good, Michael. How are you? Well, it's fantastic to see you again. Last time it was in uh, in Toronto at the RCC yeah. event. We're here at the NRF Big Show in the podcasting studio. It's great to see you. You've been here a couple of days. You're a busy, busy fella. Everyone's looking for your insights as we all both try to figure out what on earth is going on in this, uh, in this retail space. So why don't we start out with a, a quick, for those listeners who may not be familiar with you, a little bit of your background and, and what you do and, and, uh, and who you are. Sure. So... Um did a few things earlier in my career, but uh, really the last 25 years or so have been exclusively in retail. Um, a long time ago, spent a bunch of time at Sears, and then uh, moved on to Neiman Marcus, um, head of strategy, customer mm-hmm. insight, omni-channel, multi-channel sort of things. And then the last uh, 10 years or so, I've been out on my own doing consulting, speaking, writing, um, contribute for Forbes, so just putting my stuff out there. Right on, right on. Well, um, you know, it's January, it's the time of reckoning in retail. Yeah. Uh, so I thought it would be fun to be to look back, and I think you wrote an article about it in Forbes. As you think about, okay, here's what I predicted would happen in 2019, yeah, yeah. and uh, you know we all make predictions, right? Some more bolder than other, and and how did you do? What were your thoughts on your? What did you predict, and how did you do? Uh, so I, I made quite a lot of them, so I won't go through all of them. I think the ones that uh, I mostly got right is what I call the collapse of the middle, which is this idea that if you're not at either end of the spectrum, mm-hmm. you know, sort of thinking about value convenience assortment to one side and more experiential, high service, premium to the other side. Mm. Um, you know, those continue to do well, uh, but seeing retailers that just haven't staked out a clear position continuing to struggle. So, you know, here in the U.S., that's Macy's, Kohl's, JCPenney, yeah. a bunch of specialty stores. Um, so and, I think and, we continue to see that. Yeah, and Kohl's in the news this week with their results. I mean, you and I talked back in May about this Amazon traffic driver yeah. solution. yeah. Um, you know, I, I give them I give them credit for trying something different. I'm just not sure it's going to work out well in the long run for them. You know? They, yeah. I mean, the other thing I, I think I included Coles in my prediction that Macy's was was not going. You know, the things they were doing are not really going to move the dial. And mm-hmm. I think I think the same thing is true for Coles. Yeah. I mean, absolutely, they've been trying a bunch of things. I think you know the fundamental part of this prediction and some of the other stuff I write about is that you know you it, with with so many choices on the part of consumers and so much. Um, competition mm. and such ready access to whatever it is you want to learn about or, or get a price on or what have you, you, know, you really have to be much more, as I call it, remarkable mm. to really do anything. And so I think there's, you know, expression lipstick on a pig. I mean, right. you know, these businesses... More is pretty, not better. Better yeah. is better, I think. It, yeah, yeah. It's I mean, it's right. just so, you know, I think they're improving their business mm. objectively, but they're not really breaking through to command enough customer attention, engagement. Yep. Loyalty, et cetera. So we ticked the box for that one. Yeah. Got that um, one. You know, the store strike back was another one of mm-hmm. my um, 
predictions, and the idea there was that physical retail was, you know, which is obviously losing share to e-commerce, and that's not going to change, mm. but that the retailers that really understood the role of the physical store and uh, saw their stores as assets rather than liabilities and invested behind them and found things that could be a competitive edge against Amazon and others could actually restore some profitability so um, and sales growth. And I think uh, Target probably mm -hmm. is the best case scenario um, there. But, but I think Walmart, Best Buy, Home Depot, you know, we've seen a number of these physical retailers, mostly mm -hmm. physical retailers, improve their digital capabilities for sure, improve their e-commerce yeah. capabilities for sure, mm -hmm. but do a better job of integrating the experience and, and uh, finding the places where they could uh, make the physical stores work better. I think what you've described is embracing the blur, right? Is just embracing it yeah. and, and... Yeah, I think, you know, it's understanding for most retailers that customer journeys are starting in a digital channel. They may or may not result in a transaction mm -hmm. in a digital channel. And, you know, understanding those different customer journeys, figuring out the places where you can eliminate friction or pain points or whatever you want to call it. But at the same time, finding places where physical retail presence can really wow the customer. So that may be better customer service, better visual, mm. uh, buy online, pick up and start. You know, there's a whole set of things yeah, that yeah. I think retailers are, are doing to um, win customers back. Yeah. So and, um, and just off mic, you and I were just talking about the, the Nordstrom's Women's Store. We both visited yeah. it. And, and yeah. they've got some elements of that, right? They've got a Absolutely. nice they got a nice experience and, you know, they're, they're customer service is fantastic, that people are friendly, and they've yeah. got some drop-off and pick-up places. They're, they've got elements of those, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I mean, physical stores, I mean, one of my other ones was, um, which I've been talking about for a few years, is I called Apocalypse No, which is the retail apocalypse <laughs> is, is largely uh, a myth. I mean, we're seeing right. tons of store closings, retrenchment, but we're also seeing plenty of mostly physical-based uh, retailers do well, open stores, yeah. Um, and, you know, ironically, a lot of these digitally native vertical brands are the ones that are opening quite a lot of stores. And I think Nordstrom's is just a good example of, you know, what are physical stores really good at? Touching and feeling the product, social, um, having um, interaction with the sales associate, you know, a whole yeah. set of things that physical stores are positioned to do that Amazon can't, or at right. least in the, in the bulk of their business. And so I think the folks that understand that. Um, oftentimes, they're doing pretty well. They had a nice uh, Canada Goose activation. Yeah. Uh, not the best timing in the world, unfortunately. Right. It's yeah. 65 yeah. degree yeah. Uh, weather here in New sure. York. But they had yeah. a Glossé one at the back, uh, yeah. the back of the main floor. So I think they, you know, I think they're yeah. doing as much as well as can be done. Well, and I think um, this wasn't a specific prediction, but I think you know the other thing that a lot of good retailers are doing are finding things that are uh, brands partnerships mm -hmm. that are really unique to them. So, um, so. Uh, Nordstrom, Target, some others partnering with some of these newer brands. Mm -hmm. And so it's not the only place, literally, you can get the right. product. But in many cases, from a physical perspective, that's the only place you can get immediate gratification, check it out, try stuff on, and, and yeah. so forth. So I think that's a big part of the store striking back as well. Yeah, I guess you, I guess it, it feels like, uh, you know, the, we were in the beta store at Hudson Yards, and mm -hmm. we were just talking about Showfields, which yeah. are two other different type of articulations of that same thing, right? It's, it's a brand direct strategy, but it has to have some sure. physicality. And these, the, all these people are trying to different interpretations of that, right? Yeah, and that, that actually, one of my other predictions had to do with um, physical being a big part of the growth strategies for these digitally native vertical brands. And mm -hmm. we're seeing, I think, you know, we're obviously seeing that play out with a lot of these companies. Uh, you know, Warby Parker obviously has been out there for a while. Sure. Um, Casper just filed their their S1. They've been opening a bunch of stores, yeah. um, but also activating in places like Showfields or neighborhood goods or places where they can test out right. um, a physical presence and then, you know, either decide to do more stores or bigger stores or, yeah. or what have you. It seems like a very efficient 
customer acquisition model. I mean, it's tough to be efficient when you're a digital and native brand these days. It's expensive to acquire customers, right? Well, you know, that's the thing. And I, I you know, a bunch of people criticized me for this a few years ago when I said that, you know, it's just not as much as people think it's inexpensive to build a brand mm. online. It turns out not so much. And so, you know, yeah. you've saved the cost of, in a lot of cases, the inventory investment, the physical store investment. But as, as Facebook, Instagram, Google and others figured out basically how to keep jacking up the price well, and, uh, for and the best customers, then, yeah, it's become a, not close to an eyeball. I think for some an impossible formula, frankly, yeah. but but um, for others, just a, a hard way to go. So, yeah, physical stores turn out to be, uh, in many cases, lower cost acquisition. And for apparel players in particular, mm-hmm. the returns are much, much yeah. lower. So yeah. some of these brands are really just challenged by um, crazy marketing costs. Yep. Um, high product returns, and, and uh, so, yeah, the physical strategy is a way to potentially overcome that. Well, it's interesting because you can still be clever enough to yield some advantage from a physical strategy. I think it's very tough in Facebook or Google because it's almost like a utility now. It's tough to get advantage in it. Right, right. right. I mean, you can spend, but you, you can't really outspend the big guys, and it's tough to, to be clever about it. It's yeah. like a utility. You've got to be there, but you know, where, whereas in physical, you can find a unique location or you can build out a neat right. format or you could do some stuff. Right? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, some, some people, I forget who originally said it, but um, this idea that awareness is, you know, awareness and reach are both overrated. You know, <laughs> it's one thing to, mm. you know, and so I think, you know, a lot of cases for, for Facebook advertising or, or Google, what have you, you can get in front of those customers. Um, but as you pointed out, you're painting a lot to get in front of the best prospects. And at the same time, just because you're in front of them um, doesn't mean they're going to engage with you. Um, and yeah, it's hard to use those media to, to do anything really unique and special. So yeah, stores are billboards in, in a lot of cases. Um, and you, know, you can do a lot of things that get customers in the door uh, to explore. And hopefully if they like what you have and treat them well, you get a sale out of it. Right on. Um, one of your recent articles, Shift Happens, yeah. a great, great summary of the, of the kind of the yeah, key thanks. trends that yeah. we're facing. It was really great. And it kind of, I'll use that as a leaping point off to the next question, 2020 sure. and beyond. But tell us about Shift Happens. What so, do, what do, how do you see it? So, you know, what I was, what I was looking back, and it was, it was relatively easy for me to do for that article because I just finished writing a book. And part one of the book, Remarkable Retail, is called Shift Happens. And um, I didn't talk about everything that's in the book, but... Uh, <laughs> But, you know, I, I, the part one of the book really talks about, you know, how did we get here mm. and uh, what's, most, what's really going on, what's most important to, to focus on before I pivot to part two, which is, you know, some suggestions on what to do about it. And so I was really trying to understand um, how retail has developed over the last decade or so uh, and, and see what some of the more important trends. And so one of them, I talk about a couple of them if you like. I mean, one is what I call the end of scarcity, which mm. is if you think back 10, 15 years ago, a lot of retail was really driven by um, ed, um, lack of competition, lack of customer information, lack of choice. You know, I go through a whole set of things in the book about mm. the elements of scarcity that have evaporated largely. Um, and, you know, now, for the most part, you can get just about anything you want from anywhere in the world at any time. Yeah. You can get great information about pricing, product performance, you know, you name it. And so this is why I often say, probably ad nauseum, that uh, it's not physical retail is dead, it's boring retail is dead. Because if you're boring, mediocre, just good enough, um, customers have so many 
other choices or have such much better information to inform right. their choices. So it's really the remarkable retailers that are mm. that are winning. So I think that's a big driver. You know, and obviously the internet is the is the main sure. piece of that. The other thing I talk about is, um, or one of the other things I talk about is, uh, and it gets to this embrace the blur idea, which is the customer is the channel. You know, we talk a lot in retail about e-commerce, brick and mortar channels, and you know at this point the customer is in charge. The customer is the channel. They're going to shop and get information mm. wherever uh, and however and at any time, basically. They're almost always shopping. Another thing I talked about was, you know, we no longer go online, we live online. Right. You know, most customers have, for better or worse, have a mobile smart device with them. At know, least one. Yeah, at least one. Close to 24-7. And so, you know, this idea of what's the best location being, you know, a great physical store is, you know, still important. But, you know, the best location is showing up on the customer's phone when they're in a remarkable way, when they're ready right. ready to shop. So, I mean, there's, you know, it's a few others, but I think, um, you know, a lot of these changes obviously have been incredibly profound. Mm. And I think that, um, you know, one of the other things I talk about is in, a, in the context of um, taking risk, and I think it gets back to what we're talking about a little bit with Macy's and Kohl's is, mm. you know, so many retailers... Uh, basically watched the last 15 or 20 years happen to them mm. and did a lot of incremental things, but I don't think understand understood how profoundly um, this digital disruption was, was going to affect them, didn't understand how fast the pace was moving, how customer preferences had changed, and mm. so they observed or they did some very minor tests or very incremental improvements, and I think that measured approach you know, some of the retailers I've worked for, you know, we looked at that as being, you know, pr you know, smart, not, that was the not so risky approach. Right. And uh, let's set up a store of the future and let's figure out what's yeah, going on. And Versus we'll, make the whole store the yeah. store of the future. Right? And, and um, so one of the trends uh, or one of the things in the shift happens, I said, is, you know, actually the opposite is risky. Like being, mm. being slow, slow and steady, study, lots of analysis is actually the most risky thing you can do because now so many retailers find themselves way behind mm. and in many cases it's not clear to me like people ask me all the time well you know what should Macy's do what should you know JCPenney do or whatever and I have some ideas but frankly I think well I'm not I'm not at all sure that even if you had amazing ideas and flawlessly executed them um, that it's enough because customers have moved on mm. competition has moved on and unfortunately in many cases JCPenney being a good example um, you can go back and look at Toys R Us, Barney's, you know, any of these companies. Sure. Is they run out of runway. They don't have the time or the money yeah. um, to make these changes, even if they had a great, a great strategy. So, you know, my part of what I'm trying to get across right now is, you know, take action before it's too late, really. I mean, I hate to be so negative about it. But. Right on. So let's talk about 2020 and beyond. Um, you know, you, you talked about the Casper S1, which is yeah. interesting reading, to say the least. Yeah. Uh, you know, this, you know, is the return of unit economics. There's a lot of retailers or concepts out there that, yeah. you know, boggle the mind in terms of their unit economics. Is this the yeah. year, I, I started this interview talking about right. the year, of uh, the time of reckoning, is this the year or the period of reckoning where this, you know, some of these concepts start to run into, into trouble based on their, that I, I think so, but I will, you know, one of the things I missed last year um, was, I said, Wayfair, which to me has absolutely horrific yeah. unit economics and, um, you know, is definitely the poster child for sell it out of loss and make it up on volume. Um, I thought that, you know, because they had been public for several years and the unit economics by and large were getting worse, <laughs> that their stock would crash back to earth. And, you know, it did, it did um, a little bit of sanity, in my view, came into the market in that they didn't keep pace with the market. They're basically flat year over year. Mm. Um, 
But, you know, they're, they're just one of many companies, you know, that we can now see because they're public. Yeah. And now we can start to see, get some insight into Peloton and um, um, Casper and some of these others mm-hmm. where, I, 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 you know, I just don't get it. But I've been wrong. You know, I've been, I've been uh, you can go back and find some stuff I've written on my personal blog and Forbes a couple of years back where I said, you know, we're about to hit the wall. We're about to yeah, hit yeah. the wall. And, you know, I've the largely. The wall keeps moving. Yeah. I mean, I've largely been wrong. But, I mean, I like to think that people will realize that, you know. And, and, you know, I I guess just as context, you know, many of these companies have done some amazing things to to build a business. So I I would not want to take away from from Wayfair or some others, you know, what they have done to go from, you know, nothing to having this impact. Having said that, uh, you know, it's a great, you know, I I joke around that when I was at Sears, you know, never occurred to me to go in and say, hey, guys, I got a great idea. (laughs) We're going to lower our prices by 15%. We are going to quadruple our marketing. We are going to hire people by the droves to handle our, you know, create ninja customer service or whatever you want. Yeah. But trust me, in 10 years, it's going to be great. <laughs> you know, that would have been my We're going last. to lose our shirts for, yeah, for, yeah, for, for 10 a, years. A, a 10 years. But, um, you know, because, you know, it actually turns out when you price, you know, when you consistently price below the competition and you drastically outmarket them and you have a pretty decent product, people might buy it. Yeah. But, you know, that's not a business. <laughs> you know? So, so yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 I guess what I'd like to believe is, you know, the passage of time with little improvement mm-hmm. in the economics and more of these companies, you know, as actually being able, you know, I, I've said about Casper, sorry, I'm rambling a little bit, but I said about Casper, like, I, you know, my assumption, because I used to work in the mattress business, is they're losing an incredible amount of money and that they can say whatever they want about how many stores they're going to open, but it's not going to happen. I think the S1 said it's yeah. $249 loss per unit or yeah. something, right? So, so, so I, but I, you know, I didn't know it. I did, couldn't work it out to that level of detail, yeah, yeah. but it's actually worse than I thought. Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, they've been able to raise venture capital dollars and we'll see, we'll see how their IPO goes. You know, is this going to be WeWork or is this going to be... Um, you know, something different, Stitch Fix or something that you know has got a little bit more of a, a real real or some others that I think have fundamentally and Warby Parker. I mean, there's yeah, a, there, yeah, you know there yeah. are a few there's a class that, I, that I think have um, you know the prospects of being real sustainable yep. large businesses. So yes, long long way around the barn. I would I believe yes, finally this year. But if I keep saying it every year, eventually, eventually right. something will happen, or I'll, or I'll be wrong. Uh, last question for yep. you is, uh, you mentioned a book, so you've got a book coming out. It's very Correct. exciting. Tell yeah. us uh, for a couple of minutes, tell us uh, about uh, what's the title, when it's coming out, and all that, sure. uh, two minutes of that. Yeah, kind of so stuff. it's called Remarkable Retail, um, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Digital Disruption. And, um, you know, as I said earlier, I mean, it's essentially it's my take on um, what's transpired over the last decade in particular. A little bit of history, but mm-hmm. just kind of big context. But um, what's most important to focus on? Um, dispelling some myths, I think that are that are popular, mm. and um, and then you know, kind of a call to action, you know, similar to what I said earlier, which is you know, the pace of change is accelerating. Um, there's so many pressures that make it harder and harder, and you know, you're running out of time if you don't get started right now. And then the second part is what I call the eight essentials of remarkable retail, which is this framework I've right. developed over time, um, working in industry and, and working as a consultant. Um, which hopefully provides you know a bit of a roadmap to executing the transformation. So and, I, and that's what I love about the yeah. book is I love that that the first part is here's the issue and the second part you're actually providing a roadmap or results or, or things. I think you know 
pulling from your experience. I'm looking forward to the book. Thanks. Um, when when is it going to be on shelves? So um, you can pre-order it right now oh, at Amazon or Barnes good. and Noble, but it will be out April 14th. And um, yeah, I'm excited. I you know I really wanted to. I mean, I think there you know there's certainly plenty of good retail books out there. Um, some that I you know reference in the book that I drew yep. on and, and people that I that I know and respect. Um, what I really wanted to do is be maybe a bit more provocative um, than some, but mm. also to your point, really say, okay, here's what to do about it. Cause I think right. there's lots of people that make interesting observations, yep. interesting yep. predictions for the future. Um, but it's not so easy to know, okay, now, now what do I do about it? And right. you know, I don't, you know, to be fair, I, it retails a huge industry and I don't pretend that, you know, this is a, some sort of paint by numbers, answer for everyone's hmm. issues. But as I've worked with clients and I've done workshops and whatnot, you know, I found most people, most companies are able to l- at least latch onto a few right. things and say, okay, yeah, this, this makes sense. And we have a sense of how to go about it. So we'll, we'll, we'll see how it does. Well, I look forward to it. I think it's going to be one of the best books of the year. I'm, I'm really you. looking forward it. to it. Yeah. I've, I've seen a, a l- yeah. couple of glimpses yeah. of it already. Yeah. So listen, thanks again for joining sure. me on The Voice of Retail. Always a treat to catch up. Likewise. Uh, it'll be a fun ride for 2020 as always, so we look for never look dull, to Never a dull moment in retail, I don't think. All right, thanks, Steve. Thanks, Michael. Well, all right, thanks to Paul and Steve for being my guest on this episode. Now let's hit the highlights of the retail news in Canada and around the world with retail this week. Uh, busy day for a whole bunch of reasons, or a busy week, I should say, for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, but we start off with Golf Town swinging back against industry headwinds. This is from the Financial Post. Good article, talks about the great team. Uh, at uh, at Golf Town, who's uh, reconceptualizing that business and just doing a great job. So it's a nice uh, overview article that from the Financial Post. There is no retail apocalypse. Canada's top shopping mall see sales growth. This from Yahoo uh, article featured uh, here talking about the Retail Council of Canada's shopping mall survey. Productivity went up in most uh, shopping malls. Uh, Deanne uh, Breezebaugh is quoted here, and uh, further to the no retail apocalypse, lots of stories this week about a, uh, a spate of closures in the Canadian marketplace. Um, cumulatively, some of these are happening around the world, some are specific to Canada, you know, around the world you've got, uh, you know, Bose, for example, Carlton Cards, Papyrus, uh, you know, these are exiting retail stores for one reason or another, strategic decisions and a whole bunch of other things. You've got some that are Canadian-specific bench uh, which is closing their stores. Uh, you've got um, 10,000 villages, uh, so unfortunately they couldn't make the math work. Great uh, operators, just I guess the concept wasn't really resonating as much uh, with consumers as it was. Uh, Craig Patterson does a good job of pulling this all together uh, in a kind of a summary article where he uh, chronicles about 500 locations closing uh, in total so far announced this year. And, and, you know, articles that are coming out, I was interviewed on the radio uh, in Winnipeg, I just uh, just reading an article that uh, came out in uh, Financial Post. I just did an interview with uh, Yahoo, just talking about what is going on. Basically, uh, there is no retail apocalypse, but the transformation is certainly real. Now, of course, at this time of the year, there's always a spate of closures as retailers actually execute on decisions that were made uh, back in 2019 or the year prior that they're going to wrap it up, but uh, wanted to get that one last kick at the can with the holiday season or retailers who uh, hope that the last uh, or the numbers in the holiday season uh, help pull them through. But uh, unfortunately, the math just doesn't always work. Uh, you know, all this is uh, fair to be said, but uh, let's uh, pause for a moment, of course, uh, and think about all the uh, employees that are affected, lives that are affected by these closures. And uh, we wish them all, I certainly wish them all well in finding new gigs, lots of uh, retail 
job postings. You can check them out as well on uh, Retail Council. We have a job posting uh, area for uh, retail jobs, both frontline and at the executive level. Uh, from the Vancouver Courier, BC considering province-wide ban on plastic bags at retail checkouts. This is huge, really. I mean, you're just seeing such credible momentum. We've been talking about it uh, for many months here on The Voice of Retail. I think you're going to see 2020, and I, I predicted this happening. And not a big you know, leap uh, that um, uh, sustainability issues, plastic issues, will be massive in 2020 and beyond. So here's another uh, piece of that. Uh, this is from the Vancouver Courier with some great quotes from... Uh, uh, from Greg Wilson from uh, Retail Council Canada out in Vancouver. Uh, Mac to Subley's head office changed business strategy to stem losses. So lots going on. Uh, new CEO Phil Arata is really trying to get a hold of uh, the Mac, uh, both from an assortment perspective here. Uh, they built a really uh, nice um, uh, head office, but I guess uh, a little overstretch for them. So they're going to go into a different uh, different location. And then they're going to convert uh, part-time casuals into permanent workers. And, and the objective there is uh, a couple of things, but uh, reducing turnover is a very effective and efficient way uh, to uh, reduce cost and improve uh, the experience in store. So uh, best of luck to the folks at, uh, at MEC. Uh, in terms of, uh, let's see, what else? Retail on the, around the world. Great article here from Fast Company on Ikea store with no parking lots. It's in uh, Vienna, uh, Italy. Um, and it actually is, is has a, a, a park on the roof that's opened after store hours and is just part of overall uh, helping uh, create less of a heat island. Uh, so that's uh, great architecture, great retail. Uh, eight top retail executives on what to expect in 2020. This is from Retail Dive. This is a nice summary set of articles from the NRF uh, show, of, of course, where I recorded both the interviews you just heard. Uh, and it just uh, kind of highlights in footnotes from eight retail executives who were on stage and, and what their thoughts were, just framing it around 2020. Uh, what Gap needs to do next after canceling the old Navy spinoff. So lots of uh, financial structuring going on with Gap. They, too, are closing a few stores, consolidating stores uh, in Canada. I think they're, they're exiting Yorkdale and, and uh, Queen Street. You know, these are decisions that you're going to make about optimizing the fleet. Uh, but this is a broader strategy article here from Forbes, so it's a good read. Uh, greener fashion industry unlock more than $100 billion in value. So another uh, you know trend connected to sustainability that we've been talking about, then that's fashion and uh, this article from Bloomberg talks about the upside of what can be done uh, in terms of uh, a greener fashion industry. Uh, in terms of independence, a great article here on uh, Fare Thee Well, Newfoundland Stores. It's just a, just a great quote uh, for this couple that has uh, had a store for many, many years. Um, my favorite quote, and I included it in Retail This Week e-newsletter, uh, which you can subscribe to on uh, retailcouncil.org. Jesus, Mary and Joseph, she's 85 and not getting around as well as she used to. Let her sit down. <laughs> it's kind of a fun article about uh, just a fun perspective about a lifetime in retail and, uh, you know, n- it, them under transition themselves. Um, lessons for retailers from the rebirth of indie bookstores. This is from Harvard Business School. So interesting, right? Because, you know, the forecast was years ago that ebooks would annihilate books in general and, and that the super large bookstores would really mean the, the end of indie retail bookstores, but that didn't happen the way everyone thought it would. And, and uh, it's, this is a nice article that talks about the lessons learned in that industry or that sector of the retail industry for others. Uh, from CBC, and there's actually a couple articles about this. Uh, the commercial streets are bleeding. City hears it's just too expensive to set up shop in Montreal. Uh, I spoke with uh, Montreal-based retailers as well, and it, it is hard. The taxes are hard. You know, road closures, this, that, 
weather, that's never changed. But, you know, being a, an indie retailer in Montreal is not easy. And this article talks about that um, with an average uh, retail vacancy rate now in Montreal hitting about 15%. Um, and some retail streets uh, double that. So that from CBC. Uh, Lululemon founder Chip Wilson's next apparel place. So Business of Vancouver Chronicles, Chip quietly getting back into the game uh, with a Chinese partner and uh, doing some interesting work. Um, as he climbs uh, the North Shore Mountain on <laughs> a cold November morning. Uh, what else? Uh, business, uh, stores, shopping, and digital. Some other articles here. Amazon in the news. Kel Surprise. Uh Just filed a bunch of international trademarks for Amazon Pharmacy. Well, that's interesting. Uh, so check that out, including here in Canada. Uh, Brick-and-mortar retailers finally have Amazon in their sites, says uh, Ron Johnson. If you page back a few episodes, I interviewed Ron as he spoke uh, in Montreal with Retail Council of Canada. So he talks about how uh, the brick-and-mortar retailers are, are finally figuring it out, and he predicts it's the next decade is a tough one for Amazon. Uh, e-commerce growth threatens uh, 30% rise in urban delivery emissions. So this is on the uh, the downside. We certainly experienced not the emissions part uh, per se, but the crowded streets in New York City with their 1.6 million deliveries a day. Uh, so something uh, something there to think about. And um, have counterpoint from the Dallas News, retailers haven't figured out how to beat Amazon, but they're focused on the bigger picture now. And that's some quotes from Eric Nordstrom. Uh, visited his uh, fine new store in New York City, a uh, great store. And, uh, you know, the highlight of the buzz was the shoe bar, where uh, my good friend and I, Dave Rogerson, had the chance to have a few drinks back in November and, and just take it all in. And um, as I said in the last episode, uh, folks who are there either shopping or with people who are shopping, it's a, it's a wonderful experience. So congratulations again to, um, to the folks at Nordstrom. All right, well, uh, that's a wrap for... Um, this edition of The Voice of Retail. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe on Apple iTunes, your favorite podcast platform. If you're an Android, uh, Shopify is a great choice. Or Sorry, not Shopify. Shopify is a great choice, but Spotify is the choice for you if you're on Android to listen to podcasts. Please rate and review and be sure to recommend to a friend or colleague in the retail industry. I'm Michael LeBlanc, founder and president of Emmy LeBlanc Company, Inc. You can learn more about me on www.emmyleblanc.co or, of course, on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great week.